The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Matt, I'm really glad that you are you're here today on this Thanksgiving weekend. Um, for Nebraska fans, it was a better weekend than it was for Ohio State fans. Um, and that's okay. Like, that's super. Um, I've talked to several people um, I've talked to several people today as we were talking about Friday. Um, the conversation in the Mulholland house was, um, you know, Iowa always has this knack to come back and win, and Nebraska always has this knack of blowing a lead. And neither one of them happened this weekend. So I was really, really, really excited for my Nebraska fans um, and for my Ohio State team. I mean, that's just the way it goes, right? Um, I'm glad you're here. If you are, if this is your first time with us today, um, we encourage you to fill out a white card. You can turn it in um, at the welcome counter just to let us know you're here so we can reach out and connect with you sometime this week. We promise we're not going to fill your inbox or your, or your text messages with spam. We just want to connect with you, acknowledge the fact that you were here, reach out if you have a prayer request. If there's something that we can do to maybe help you get connected with our church, we, wanna, we would just want to be able to um, do that. Um, and lastly, I want to say there are a few more of these cards uh, on the chairs. If you have not yet filled one of these out, uh, we're just asking you to let us know how you prefer to access the Bible on Sunday mornings. As we've said every weekend this month, um, we're looking at the resource guides that we've provided in the past. Do we want to do that? Um, do we want to continue to do that? And you can just let us know. Just rank them one to five on how you access the Bible and put it in the box on your, on your way out today. So 7,114 uh, words later, Paul's letter to the churches at Rome is done. That's Romans uh, chapter 16, 16 chapters. Um, I like to imagine that over the next several days, weeks, and probably months, that letter was passed around to all of the different uh, house churches in Rome, and it was read, and it was reread, and people had questions, and people had thoughts, and people had concerns. And the crazy thing about how the Bible was dispersed and disseminated in that time um, is if they had questions of Paul, they had to write Paul a letter and it had to go back to wherever Paul was. And then Paul had to respond and it would go back. So there, they didn't text, they didn't Facebook message, they didn't have phone calls, they didn't have email, they didn't have any of those things. They just had the text. And eventually it would have been copied and sent around to the different churches as well. And I just imagine that for all of the times in, our, in the small groups that I've been a part of over the last 17 weeks, like we've talked about a, a chapter and probably not very thoroughly within 90 minutes. So I can only imagine the conversations that it took the churches in Rome to go through the entire letter and discuss it and, dis- and understand it and, and try to digest all of the things that God was telling to his, um, God was telling to his people And remember, there were a number of different house churches in Rome. We're going to read about these again here in a second. But um, there was the house church in the home of Priscilla and Aquila, who was a Jewish couple. There was a house church in the home of Aristobulus, who was possibly a grandson of Herod the Great. There was a house church in the home of Narcissus, who was a possible wealthy freedman of the Roman emperor Tiberius. 
There was a house church in the home of Syncritus who met with slaves in his home. There was a house church in the home of Philogius who also met with slaves. And these house churches represented this diversity of background and socioeconomic status. And it would have been kind of a mess of people, if I can say that in a positive way. There would have been so many different backgrounds and so many different understandings as they're getting together reading this letter um, And over the course of those 7,114 words, what they heard was a gospel that was counter to the gospel of their day. They're constantly being presented every single time they're reading through this letter to the church at Rome. They're hearing a different gospel than the one their culture presents to them. And I know you probably remember this, but we're going to talk about it anyway. That Roman gospel said that peace and security were found in Caesar. And peace and security were brought with the sword. That was the good news of Julius Caesar. Um, the kingdom of Caesar was this mixture of, uh, of political power and worship of the state thrown in with all of the different Roman gods and goddesses into this, into this milieu of different things that they worshipped. But the state was very, very powerful. It was the gospel of empire. They had hot and cold running water that was metered. That's not something new to our day. They had a, a sewage system to get rid of waste. Like this was, this was a very good gospel if you were the right person. If you, were, if you were not a slave, this was a super gospel to be a part of because you had all of your needs met. It was a gospel of separation and exclusion, though, if you were not one of the wealthy people. Up to 30% of the Roman Empire was slaves, was impoverished, was being oppressed by the other 70% of the Roman Empire. If you were in that 30%, your life was a cruel ride. You would spend your life serving other people, meeting the needs of other people, constantly doing things for the betterment of other people. And it was just the way that the world operated. There were very few people, there were very few social justice warriors in the Roman Empire. Everyone just, like everyone just accepted that that was the status quo. There was no one who was going out and protesting what the empire was doing on behalf of the enslaved minority. They just weren't. There was a group of Christians who were doing something. And so what we want to do today is we want to spend our time talking about, well, what were they doing? When they heard this letter, what changed? What was, the, what was their response to what they heard in Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Let's read Romans chapter 16 together. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who's a deacon in the church in Centria. Welcome her in the Lord as one who is worthy of honor among God's people. Help her in whatever she needs, for she has been helpful to many, especially to me. Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in the ministry of Christ Jesus. In fact, they once risked their lives for me. I'm thankful to them, and so are all the Gentile churches. Also give my greetings to the church that meets in their home. Greet my dear friend Epinetus. He was the first person from the province of Asia to become a follower of Christ. I said this 17 weeks ago. Man, I just love that verse. I can only imagine what it would be to be the person identified as the first person from the province of Asia to become a follower of Jesus 
Give my greetings to Mary, who worked so hard for your benefit. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who were in prison with me. They are highly respected among the apostles and became followers of Christ before I did. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachus. Greet Apellus, a good man whom Christ approves. And give my greetings to the believers from the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet the Lord's people from the household of Narcissus. Give my greetings to Tryphena and Tryphosa, the Lord's workers, and to dear Persis, who's worked so hard for the Lord. Greet Rufus, whom the Lord picked out to be his very own, and also his dear mother, who's been a mother to me. Give my greetings to Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who meet with them. Give my greetings to Philogius, Julia, Nereus and his sister, and to Olympus and all the believers who meet with them. Greet each other with a sacred kiss. All the churches of Christ send you their greetings. It's important to remember that Paul hasn't met most of these people. He's heard about them. He's heard about their faithfulness, so he's writing them this letter. And then he continues in verse 17. Now I make one more appeal, my dear brothers and sisters. Watch out for people who cause divisions and upset God's faith, people's faith, by teaching things contrary to what you have been taught. Stay away from them. Such people are not serving Christ our Lord. They're serving their own personal interests. By smooth talking, glowing words, they deceive innocent people. But everyone knows you are obedient to the Lord. This makes me very happy. I want you to be wise in doing what is right, in doing right and, stay, and to stay innocent of any wrong. And all of my middle schoolers will love this next verse. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. What, what? May the God of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends you his greetings, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, the one writing this letter for Paul, send my greetings too as one of the Lord's followers. Gaius says hello to you. He's my host and also serves as host to the whole church. Erastus, the city treasurer, sends you his greetings, and so does our brother Quartus. Now all glory to God who is able to make you strong, just as my good news says. This message about Jesus Christ has revealed his plan for you Gentiles. A plan kept secret from the beginning of time. But now as the prophets foretold and as the eternal God has commanded, this message is made known to all Gentiles everywhere so that they too might believe and obey him. All glory to the only wise God through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. So what, what happened next? They heard this letter and they had a couple choices. Could have just gone home and gone about their lives and recognized we're, we're living in the Roman Empire and, and there's nothing we can do about this system. There's nothing we can do to change the system. So let's just keep living our lives. Let's just do our normal day-to-day -day things and, and be caught up in the system and be stuck in the system. Or they could do something else. And obviously, they did something else. Obviously, they lived lives that were different because of what they had heard. 
about a month ago, I, I, I found reference to this book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. Um, it was written in 2016, and honestly, I wish I would have discovered it about six months ago. Um, it is, uh, with the exception of what I read in preparation for this series of, of how ancient letters were written, um, this book, the, ancient, or the Patient Ferment of the Early Church, is probably my favorite thing that I've read in the last 10 years because it tells the next part of the story. It talks about what Christians did with the message they heard. It talks about how Christians lived how their lives were changed because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How when they were confronted with the good news of Jesus that goes out to the Gentiles and they had a choice, we can stick with the good news, we can stick with the gospel of Julius Caesar, or we can do something else. And in his, in his book, he ta- Alan Crider is the name of the author, he talks about three different aspects of the gospel of Rome and the gospel of Jesus Christ and and how the gospel of Jesus Christ counters the gospel at Rome. There were three different things. So there was public religious life because if you were a Roman citizen, you had a public religious life. There were things that you did as part of your public religious life. If you were a citizen of Rome, you you had private associations. And if you were a Roman citizen who believed in the gospel of Caesar, you had a certain way that you responded to crisis. And what what Kreider does in this book is he he talks about the ways that, that the Romans lived out their gospel and the Christians lived out their gospel. And I think there's a lot in here for us today. So let's talk about, um, let's talk about public religious life, first of all. So in your public religious life as a Roman citizen, it was, it was marked by your worship and not your ethic. And here's, here's what that means. For the Roman citizen, my public religious life was marked by my worship and not by my ethic. For the public Christian or the public Roman citizen, my life was marked by how I worshipped the Roman gods. It was marked by how I worshipped the state It was marked by the things that I did as a part of my life that demonstrated that I believed in the gospel of Caesar. And as long as 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 someone worships correctly in the Roman Empire, as long as you demonstrated thankfulness to the way that the society functioned, recognizing that there are people on top and people on bottom, and that's just the way the system is, and if I don't buck the system, then what's going to happen is I'm going to have a successful public worship life and everyone around me is watching me that's how like that's how fascist societies work right you depend on other people to report you when you fail to worship the state properly this is what was taking place in rome and the roman citizens were demonstrating their public worship and as long as you didn't anger the gods you are participating correctly you're a good little citizen Follow all of the rules and regulations. You go to the temple when you're supposed to. You're a good little citizen. Everything's great. But public religious life for the Christian um, was actually quite different. It looked dramatically different. He, he shares this example of something that happened on May 7th in the year 203. Um, there's this... Um, there's this... I don't even know how to describe it. It's called the Passion of the Saints, Perpetua and Felicity. 
Perpetua was a early Christian martyr. In your version event today, there's a link to this. Um, it's actually autobiographical up until the point where she was arrested and then killed in the amphitheater. It's a fascinating tale of what early Christians lived their lives like. Well, on May 7th of 203, the people of Carthage went to the games like they always did because this was their, this was their public religious life. They went to the games. They went to the amphitheater. They went to watch animals gore one another. They went to watch gladiators fight and die by the sword. But they got something else instead on May 7th, 203. They got Christians, a group of Christians, who refused to play the game. Perpetua was a 21-year-old female, and she was a person of nobility. She was a Christian from a town of about, 30, about 35 miles west of Carthage. And one of her fellow Christians was a slave named Felicity. They'd been arrested weeks earlier, so likely they had time to prepare for their behavior when they entered the amphitheater on May 7th. They walked in, and the first thing that they were supposed to do was they were supposed to put on the costumes of of the various Roman gods because the Roman gods were going to battle with one another in the amphitheater. And they refused to put those costumes on. They were not going to have their identities as Christians replaced by false gods. At one point, they were both tossed into the air by a cow and they landed on the ground stunned. Perpetua was the first one to wake up and she walked over to her sister in Christ, Felicity, and stood her up and they were side by side, noble and slave. There was no difference between the two of them because they were united in Christ. Kreider writes this, they could not control what was going on around them, but they could be themselves. At certain points during the games, the crowds were sympathetic and at other times cruel because they didn't know what to make of these group of Christians who weren't playing by the rules who weren't hurling insults at the crowd and hurling accusations at the people who were there to persecute them and kill them. And at the end, they gathered in the center of the amphitheater. And before they were killed, they gave one another the kiss of peace as they had been taught to do during their gatherings. We read that in Romans chapter 16. And just before they died, their jailer, A man named Pudens, who had observed all of their behavior over the previous several weeks, became a Christian. Again, they couldn't couldn't control what was going on around them, but they could be themselves. See, what these Christians understood, and I think there is something in here for us, what these Christians understood is that their role in the public arena was to embody Christ was to live like Christ, was to demonstrate what it looks like to be like Christ. Here's the the second area that he talks about in this book, and it's in the area of, of private associations. And this is the example that he uses. In this uh in this city called Lanuvium, there was a burial society there. And as long as you paid your dues 
and didn't misbehave at dinner. Like this is actually what the rules said. This is like 200. As long as you paid your dues and didn't behave at at dinner, not by moving from seat to seat or speaking abusively towards other members, as long as you did that, when you died, this burial society would get together and they would give you a religious burial at no additional cost for you. What was the cost? Anywhere from a quarter to a third of a day's pay. Every single day, every single day, every single day. 65% of the population couldn't afford this. So when those people died, like they're, they're thrown into this mass grave. This is this private association. And, and it's not built on ethic. It's built on whether or not you can pay. It's built on whether or not you have the economic status to be afforded a religious funeral. But for the Christians, there was something that was different. In fact, in this point of history, um, the gathering of Christians was just that. It was a gathering of Christians. There were no Christians in the room. And it wasn't necessarily because they weren't allowed to be in the room. But as a non-Christian, as someone who knows that I could possibly be placed into the amphitheater in Carthage where I'm going to be killed, are you going to show up when the Christians gather? When the state decides to come and invade your house church and they swoop everybody up, you're not going to go to jail with them. You're not going to go to prison with them. So we have this situation where, where the churches in Rome were really, or the churches in Carthage were really made up of Christians only. Again, it wasn't non-Christians need not apply. It was non-Christians aren't going to show up because they're not going to push back against the state because they know what happens when they push back against the state. So what we have then is we have these writings from this, this church father named Tertullian, who's also, also from Carthage. I found it was so fascinating that the three stories that he talks about all take place in Carthage. He wrote this book called Apology, and that means defense. And basically he said this, Christians teach by deeds. They read the books of God, which gives them understanding of the times they live in, and this increases their hope and confidence. They read the books of God, which gives them understanding of the times they live in and gives them hope and confidence. They didn't restrict membership to only those who could pay. Giving was voluntary. And this group of people actually buried anyone who needed to be buried, Christian or not. This is different than the state. Their primary behavior was a meal, which took place at least weekly. Does this sound familiar to us as Christians? Their assembly, uh, their gathering wasn't just a part of like just a regular thing. This, uh, I like the way he wrote this. He wrote, their assembly was not one of a palette of social commitments in urban Rome. Like it wasn't just something we do. We go and we gather in this place because this is what we're supposed to do. It was the center of the lives of the Christian. That's what the purpose of the gathering was. If I'm a Christian and I live in Carthage, if I live in ancient Rome, this gathering isn't just some sort of 
civic duty, some religious thing that I do. This is actually the center of my life. Entering the church was difficult, but not financially. It was difficult ethically and morally. See, there had to be evidence of a life change. You could not buy your way into the church. It was dependent on the life change that Jesus had done in your life. I love this so much. Their gatherings were meant to empower the members and give them a sense of their worth, meaning, and purpose because of what Christ had done. See, when these early Christians gathered, what they did was they talked about who they were. They talked about whose they were. They had this understanding as the scriptures were read to them and as they um, stated the scriptures that they had memorized, they had this sense of who they were because of what God had done for them. And this led them to live courageous lives and bold lives. This led them to be able to walk into the amphitheater and not play the game. We're not going to do what you call us to. We're going to live separately. And outsiders, what's interesting then is outsiders didn't see any of this because, again, they weren't inside the room. They, they couldn't tell you what the, what the rituals of the church were like. But they saw the lives of the Christians outside the rooms. They saw what was demonstrated by the believers outside of the room. And what they saw stunned them. They saw Christians feeding the poor. They saw Christians caring for babies who had been cast out of society by the Romans. They saw Christians caring for aged slaves, prisoners. And this is a quote. They said, look how they love one another. They did not say, listen to the Christian's message. They did not say, see what the Christians have written. The spoken message is important and clearly was important. But what these people saw in observing the Christians drew them towards faith. Right? They, did, they didn't have a category for it. They didn't know what to do because they saw all of these people actually doing something different with their lives. And then lastly, uh, responding to crisis. There's this uh, pretty famous plague called the Antonine Plague that hit the Roman Empire between 165 and 180 AD. Um, scholars believe that the plague was brought with, with Roman soldiers as they returned from the Near East and it spread all over the Roman Empire. Um, in latter years, the plague was killing up to 2,000 people a day in the city of Rome. I just imagine that for a moment in one particular place. I think we can. I think we can, we can think about this if we just go back a few years. The total death count ranges anywhere from 5 to 10 million people. And it's estimated that 10% of the Roman Empire died because of this particular plague. How did the Romans respond how did they respond to this crisis? What did, what, did the, what did the gospel of Caesar 
call the people to do who were Roman citizens? Well, they sent people, uh, delegations of leaders to these places called oracles. Maybe you've heard of the Oracle of Delphi. Maybe you've heard of that. You have no idea what it is. Well, they would go to these places and the prophets would go into caves where they would supposedly hear the words of the god Apollos the spokesman of Zeus. And then the prophets would write out a long poem. They would take it out to the people who would then go home, of course, after they paid a large fee. Don't forget that part. So if I want to know what's going on with this plague in my city, I'm going to go see the oracle at Delphi. I'm going to pay money, and then I'm going to get a poem in return. And see, because the Romans were polytheists, what the Romans wanted to know was, which God did we anger? Which God did we not worship appropriately? Which God did we not worship correctly? And what did we do to deserve this? And basically, the answer on on the poems is very similar. You didn't pay attention to the right God Your ritual wasn't done properly. You didn't worship God in the right way. And increasingly, you are tolerating these Christians among you. They would be told to return home and worship. And again, this goes back to what I said earlier. It wasn't about an ethic. It wasn't about the way they were living. It was about the way they were worshiping. It was the way they were demonstrating their worship of these false gods. So one of these groups was, was sent to, was told to return home, draw pure water from seven carefully prepared fountains and sprinkle the water on their homes. Then they were to build a statue of Apollo armed with a large bow. And when these things were done, the plague would be shot away. See, that's worship. You're not worshiping God, the gods, correctly. So go and do this thing. But the reality is, is these things didn't actually explain the plague. And the things that they were told to do were actually pretty similar to the things they normally did. So, like, the way we sometimes think about Christianity is, like, I have to try harder to do better. Does anybody fall for that? Like, I know I'm supposed to read the Bible, so I'm going to read the Bible harder this week. And then God's really going to be happy with me. I'm going to pray three times a day this week, and then God is really going to be happy with me. Right? This is, this is in essence, what these people are being told. Like, the way you're worshiping Apollos is right. You just need to try harder. This thing, just build a statue to him. And again, if that doesn't work, come back, and I'll go talk to Apollos. You'll give me some money, and then I'll tell you something else you have to do. But back in Carthage, this time the Christian bishop Cyprian responded to yet another plague about 80 years after this one. This plague, like every other plague, affected everyone. It affected pagans and Christians alike. But rather than go to an oracle to hear what the gods had for the people, Cyprian told the Christians to do something amazing. He told them to listen to the words that God had already presented to them. He told them what we ought to do is see how God has already revealed himself to us. 
and do that. Be a people who are different in that way. See, for Cyprian and the Christians in Carthage, the question was not, why has this plague broken out? The question was not, what did we do to deserve this plague? Their question was something different. How should we respond to it? What should we do as Christians? The Bible told them, and it tells us, that caring for the weak honors God. We don't need an oracle to tell us that. We have God's word. In fact, God cared for them when they were weak. So what they were called to do is demonstrate the same love and the same kindness and the same mercy that they had received from God to all of the people of Carthage. Because they had experienced this love, they were called to do that exact same thing for those who did not know Christ. He cares for us today by, by sending us on a mission, by giving us purpose, and we are to imitate this mercy. Cyprian wrote this, It is not at all remarkable if we cherish our own, only our own brethren, with a proper observance of love. Instead, we should do more than the publican or the pagan. Shouldn't one who professes to be a son of God imitate the example of his father? No occasion should be given to the pagans to censure us deservedly and justly. It profits nothing to show forth virtue in words and destroy truth in deeds. See what Cyprian is doing here in Carthage what God has been calling us to do in his letter to the church at Rome is to live out the faith that we claim we believe. To demonstrate it. Last week in our elders meeting, we talked about quite, quite a bit of this, and I don't remember who it was. Someone read 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 to 12. Christy read it earlier. Make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands just as we instructed you before. So just so there's no misunderstanding, Paul is not telling us to go and build a cabin in the woods and not talk to anyone. Paul is not telling us to go and retreat and have nothing to do with our culture and our society. We know this because of the very next thing he says. Then people who are not believers will respect the way you live and you will not need to depend on on others. See what Paul is calling the church at Thessalonica to do, what he's calling the church at Rome to do, what Cyprian called the church at Carthage to do was to demonstrate your faith, is to live out the words that you claim you believe. And you will do this best when you love other people. When you serve other people, especially non-believers, especially those people who sin differently than you. That will be your best witness. In our day, it's not posting something on social media. Not getting to an argument at home over Thanksgiving holidays with the person who believes wrongly about politics. It's about loving and serving other people. This is what we're called to do. 
And Dave Paris said this, he said, our reason for being good is to be a conduit for Christ to point people to God. See, we are not little, I can't remember which Christmas carol it is, we're not good for goodness sake. Right? We're not good for goodness sake. We are good because our goodness points, ought to point to Christ. Because there are lots of people who are good for goodness sake. There are lots of people who know how to morally be good. But that's not the same as your goodness pointing to Christ. And I love this. John Thomas said, In our crazy, frantic, insane world, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. This must be part of our message. See, this, this message of rest for the church at Carthage was a completely different gospel than the message of Caesar. The message of the gospel of Caesar is do more, try harder, be better. You can do it. Build this statue, sprinkle this water on your house. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And you might, you might have this plague eradicated in your community. And that wasn't the message. Peter writes this. We're going to talk about Peter next year. You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people, will speak, if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. If someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. And then this prompts all sorts of questions in my mind. Am I living a life? Am I living a hopeful life? Do others see hope in me? Do others see joy in me? Do others see these things, these, these ethics of the gospel in my life? And I think one of our temptations is to live as a people who don't have any hope. At least no hope in Christ. And as we said this um, last week, it's often because we just don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. We don't live like it's true. We don't think that people who don't know Christ are actually going to hell. Therefore, we don't act upon it. We don't really believe that. We don't think that God will follow through on his promises, so we don't live like that. What we think we need to do is, is live in a way that our will and our desires are above God's. We think that we know better than God. We think that if God only knew my situation and knew my circumstance, then he would do this thing. That's not what being a member of God's kingdom is like. And I think it's really easy for us to retreat into ourselves and the comfort of not just our essentials, but our convictions and our preferences. What we have to see as Christians is we're called to pursue the godly life. And I don't know, I don't know what kind of tension this creates in you. I shared with you last week, like, man, I'm just... I get, like, intellectually, I know so much. But it, hasn't, but it hasn't penetrated my heart. And I wonder if that's true for you. 
I wonder if intellectually, logically, you understand the gospel. But it's not in here. And I think our only right and proper response, we've talked about this throughout this series in the book of Romans, is is repentance. The only proper response is to worship God correctly. And that sounds a lot like Rome, but it's not through things, it's through a way of life. It's through the way we love God and the way that we love other people. It starts with repentance. It starts when we acknowledge our sin. See, not believing the gospel is sin. And this is something that we must repent of. It's something that I must repent of. And it's the acknowledgement that only Jesus fixes that. He's the only fix. We are all called as Christians to participate. We're all invited to participate in God's kingdom. If you're a Christian, like in Carthage, if you are in the room, this is your job. And what's different about us in Carthage is there are lots of people who are in the room online who aren't Christians. This is our job as Christians. This is what we've been invited into. This is the expectation that we have as followers of Christ. We have this mission. We have this purpose in life. And this is what we're called to do. And the reality of it is it's Christianity in America is not going to get us into the amphitheater anytime soon. No matter what anyone on TV tells you. We are decades if not centuries away from any Christian entering the amphitheater. And I wonder maybe if that's the problem. I wonder because we are so comfortable and so complacent and so relaxed that we don't see the need to live out our lives of faith. See, our mission is to proclaim Jesus as Lord. And we can't, we can't proclaim that if we're not living it. And if we're not believing it, we won't live it. My call for you today is to repent. To desire to live for the gospel of Jesus. 17 weeks ago, I said this. The gospel of Jesus is available to all people. Once included in this salvation, we are called to live on mission together as his body under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And the question that God has for us is, will we, will we join him in this mission? Like, that's his question. That's what Paul gets at at the end of his letter to the church at Rome. I've laid out for you, church, your mission. Will you do it? This starts by believing that Jesus is who he says he was. And then making a decision to live a life emulating him. And for us, that looks like repenting of our sins. For us, it looks like being baptized as a demonstration of that new life. As an indicator of that new life. And when we read through the New Testament, we see that's just what Christians did. They were baptized. And then we live that new life. 
The Christianese word for that is confess. We confess this new life with our thoughts and our words and our deeds. This gospel of inclusiveness brings all of us together. It brings people of different socioeconomic backgrounds together. It brings people of different races together. It brings Nebraska, Ohio State, and Michigan fans together. Okay, seriously, only God can do that. But that's the truth. See, only Jesus does this. Only Jesus brings us together under one roof to faithfully proclaim the reality of who he is. Only he can do that. Because there are so many things that divide us, so many things that fracture us, so many things that threaten to split us. And what we're being asked to do is to make a decision that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the foremost mission of our lives. That's the choice. That's what's being set before us as as we read through this text. Will I make Jesus the Lord of my life? Will this be a mission that I will faithfully live out for the rest of my life? My hope for you is that if, as you're wrestling with that, that a day will come and it will be sooner rather than later. That you will lay down your life. That you will take up your cross and follow him. This is the message of Romans. You've been included to be on mission, influenced by the Holy Spirit. And within a few centuries of this, and the Roman Empire tipped 51% Christian, and they couldn't stop it. There was nothing they could do to prevent it from happening. There's all of these letters that, that go back and forth among the early church, and, and some of them even made, it, made their way to Caesar. And, and essentially, they all say the same thing. There's nothing we can do to stop this. Like, if, if we were fighting them with swords, we'd win. If they were fighting us back with swords, we'd win. We could defeat them militarily. But when a group of people stands in front of a crowd of thousands, goes together, and they kiss one another because of who Jesus is, can't stop that. Can't be defeated. There's no way to defeat this kind of love. And I believe if it happened then, it can happen now. I believe that if Christians, and it starts in this room with us, if Christians would be united around the gospel of Jesus Christ, what we'll see is an empire turn. And we each get to be a part of that. My hope and my prayer for you is that you would desire that. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter written almost 2,000 years ago to point people 
to you. Help us to understand what our mission and our purpose is. Help us to not get wrapped up in false kingdoms. Help us to not get wrapped up in trying to bring about our own kingdom. Help us to be focused on what you've already said. Help us to not look for new ways to be your people. Help us to look to your word to see what being your people actually looks like. Help us to have confidence that the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those fruits are kingdom-shattering fruits that cannot be fought against. No victory can come against them. It's in your son's name we pray.